podcast is out. The age of independence is here, where the next generation of high-performing agencies transform the agency landscape. I'm a mom, a businesswoman, and mega startup coach. This podcast is all about you, the agency owner, stepping into the new wave of opportunity, knocking out the competition in the modern market. This is the Age of Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Agar. Welcome to the show. Today, how to lead authentically with Dr. Todd Dewitt, two-time TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and leadership guru. He's a top LinkedIn learning author and one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. And today, we get to pick his brain on leadership in our business. Leadership. You hear about this all the time. A word I like even more is authenticity. I want to ask you right now to stop caring at all in the moment how much someone likes you or whether or not you are popular and get focused on being full of character, working your butt off and producing great work because long term that'll earn you the one thing always better than popularity, which of course is respect. Hi, Todd. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Absolutely. Now, tell us where you're joining us from. I am live in Houston, Texas in my HQ, which is uh, my office above the garage. Woo! That's awesome. And uh, Houston, Texas is an amazing place. Have you lived there a long time? Since 2013, I adopted it as a home base, and I really like it. Hurricanes and other issues aside, (laughs) I still love this town. Well, you're a cup half full kind of person if you're okay with the hurricanes and it, that town has such a, a great spirit to it. So amazing spirit and amazing food. If you've never been here, it's a foodie paradise. Tex-Mex? Not just Tex-Mex, which is some of the best you'll find anywhere for yeah. obvious reasons, <laughs> but there's 14,000 restaurants in Houston. No way. At least pre-pandemic, that was true. Where do you even start? (laughs) (laughs) You just pick a rule like, you know what, let's try and not repeat anything for a year or something like that. And it's easy (laughs) to do and you keep finding new places. So if it's not Tex-Mex on the list, what's your, what's at the top of the list for you this weekend? Oh, I do love Tex-Mex, Mexican. Uh, There's all kinds of specific fusions around here too. Like this region of Spain is over there in that restaurant or or this cuisine from Peru is over there. And there's some Ethiopian joint over there. And it really is anything you can imagine. So for me, a go-to, I still like a steak, by the way. I hope that doesn't offend anyone, (laughs) but I do still (laughs) love a, a good steakhouse. And boy, in Texas, they have a few. We count on it in Texas. The, we can't wear a steak and have it let us down here. So, Todd, you're a dad, a leadership guru, and an author. So, um, what do you do when you're not writing? Are you traveling, hanging out with the kids? You've probably got a lot going on. Uh, absolutely. The boys are 14 and 17 and uh, active. So, I'm always doing something with them for sure. Uh, I have a dog that is amazing. Uh, Rachel is our little dog. And my wife, Cheryl, we're always uh, trying to be busy. Now, since the pandemic, of course, everyone's had to re-examine that. And and I I will cop to a little too much Netflix for sure. Uh, But I'm a walker. So I do do many, many miles every week out in the neighborhood, trails, things like that. Do you listen to Audible while you're walking or do you like your peace and quiet? I do uh, books on occasion. I usually do podcasts or music. Which podcasts? Several. Probably my favorite is WTF with Mark Marin. Have you heard of that? 
No, I haven't. I got to add it to the playlist. Is it good stuff? Fascinating story. I'll give him the 10 second pitch. Comedian. I love and revere comedians. There's a chapter in Live Hard dedicated to comedians. Um, Mark Maron's story was he was mediocre and not popular, not famous for a whole long time before he got great at it. And frankly, got famous as a podcaster before he really became a great, great comedian. And he just interviews celebrities and other famous people. And he's frank and funny. Uh, thanks for the tip. I'll have to add that one to the playlist as a podcaster. I'm always trying to see what else is out there. So it sounds like it's so well done. And I love stories like that, where he was um, able to get his message out there and has an audience now to really benefit from his talent. So no doubt. It's pretty cool. So you mentioned live hard. So tell us about your new book. Well, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so the thing that kind of put me on the map was a, a book called show your ink, which is an obvious reference. And it was just so simple and honest. It gave me some traction and gained a few eyeballs. And the idea of putting out a book with stories, which sounded maybe dangerous to me. Do you want to give away your stories? That's what you use on stage as a professional speaker. And for a lot of reasons, I thought this makes sense and I did it. And as a result, I'm never going to stop. So the second one, uh, several years later, just came out called Live Hard. And instead of being focused on kind of authenticity and relationships and leadership, it's a little more focused on creativity, innovation, and change, taking principled risks, trying to live more fully, but the format is the same. It's 20 short, real, meaning based on things that I experienced mostly, um, stories that are colorful and emotional, which really kind of help learning stick. So stories I've heard help our brain follow like a familiar formula so that everything doesn't just go over the top of our heads every time. So where do you get these stories from? Uh, I'm a good documenter of the normal absurdity of life. If we pay attention, and I really mean this, even what we think of as just normal people, you and me, non-celebrity, non-just normal good people, we see and hear and feel and experience a, a wide, wonderful variety of things. And when you talk about them, which we usually don't because we're all socially so darn smart that we're stupid, meaning we don't like to act human, be honest, talk about mistakes and weird moments and all that. I've made a living out of doing exactly that. My biggest screw ups and mistakes and the insecurities we all feel as humans, in fact, are extremely teachable moments that people, that leaders, professionals of all stripes need to understand. So I I think uh, that I'm unique sometimes. And then I realize I'm not. I've just been documenting the absurd, colorful things that happen in my life. Like the time that guy stood on a roof and threw a watermelon. I've got a great story about that. that No way. Yeah. It was How do you even get a watermelon up there? <laughs> I actually encouraged him to throw it. It's a long story. <laughs> His hundreds of employees were in the parking lot when he did it. Uh, it <laughs> so I've created some of those moments, but sometimes you're just paying attention. There's a, an anecdote in the book about a woman who's a former student of mine. I taught MBA students for years and she had a bad boss experience and wanted to have lunch uh, one day and told me her long, difficult story about a bad boss experience that led to Massive anxiety and, you know, crying in the parking lot before you go in, racing for your car after work, the whole thing. Um, and it endangered her relationship and everything else because of the, the place it put her. And, and so that happened to me. And I thought about it and found a place to use it. And that's all I do is look at what happens and find useful ways. I say to myself, every time something happens, I bet I know how to spin that and help people because others have been through that thing too. That's kind of what I do. So do you take notes or just like write down a story when it captures your curiosity, knowing that you'll be able to come back to it later with an application that makes sense. 
Sure. I've got an ideas file. I'm constantly texting and emailing myself constantly. I'll be driving or on a walk and I've got to send an idea. They don't start fully formed. They are, as any creator knows, half baked before they are fully baked. But I've got an idea file and I'm constantly throwing things at it. And then maybe once a quarter, I spend an hour and go through the whole thing and look at what I've got. And as you well know, uh, you look back at it and sometimes you go, well, I think there's nothing there. Other times you go, <laughs> there is something there. And I think I might know how to expand on that. And now you've got an anecdote. And if you're lucky with a little more marinating and a little more thought, that anecdote evolves even further into a structure. Uh, I did a, a TED recently, a TED talk, a TEDx, and it was three anecdotes that had some similarities. And I found a really useful way, I think, we'll find out, to put them together into one longer story because they were different aspects of a similar issue. Wow. So you never know exactly how it's going to work, but it definitely evolves over time before it hits a full story. What's the name of that TED Talk, by the way? Has it been released? Is that something we no, can look up? Was, uh, I've, I've done three so far. One it was 2012 uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And that's about, it's called Get Over Yourself. Then I did Texas A&M University had one recently and that was live on stage. Huge fun because I haven't been on stage a whole lot for obvious reasons. Yes. And, um, I'm trying to remember what I called it. I think I called it the creativity paradox, the punchline idea. Right. That one is, we always say we want creativity in organizational life. Organizations say it's so important. Creativity, innovation, change. But then when new ideas show up, man, they are treated hostile and beat on relentlessly. It's anything but true that we have open arms for creativity. So I talk about that. And I had three anecdotes that really in different ways helped address that topic. Uh, and then there's a third one. It's, it's recorded for a group out of New Jersey putting on a TEDx in June. And it's called The Price of Deviance somewhat related idea to, to live hard. It's, it's about uh, the, the social cost you pay when you actually do advocate for something. It might be you or a great idea, a thing we all need to talk about, whatever it might be. There is a social cost to that because you might think you're doing something simple and good and measured and appropriate, maybe even vital, but what others see and how they feel about it can vary widely. And I'd like to try and educate people to number one, stand up, speak up, advocate for good quality change in their life, not just at work and to have their eyes open when they do so because it is rough waters sometimes and you got to be ready to navigate them. So in other words, shaking up the status quo is going to come with uh, some differences in how you're received socially. You're going to have to go through some uncomfortable things and you don't want to be caught off guard. Almost but you always also want to encourage case. people to still stand up for their message. You know, the worst thing in the world for me, being a, a person who kind of motivates in this area for a living, is watching someone who hasn't done it for a long time or ever find the courage to speak up to someone maybe they're in a relationship with or about an issue we should be taking, you know, changing how we deal with at work. Have it not go awesome and then go back into a shell and say, why did I do that? Why would I ever want to take that risk? I volunteered for that risk and I don't want to do it anymore. Change is no fun. Forget change. Uh, that's the most horrible thing in the world. My job is to get them to uh, rethink it, learn something, reframe it in their head and try again. So when we have an idea. Tell us what we should do with it. Because I wonder if sometimes those seeds of ideas, when we share them too early, the other person just can't envision where it's going and then the idea just gets squashed so like what should you do with a baby of an idea that's just You're not bored yet the way you just said that was perfect. It's, it's what happens all the time. It's a little different when you think about relationships, friendships and partnerships versus work. At work, there's a, a known social system 
And it's not you and one friend, two friends, one partner. It's you and a social system. And there are many spots in the hierarchy. There's always a hierarchy. They have different agendas, different levels of power, different interests uh, in what you may or may not have to say, given whatever the idea might be. The short answer to your question is if people were thoughtful about preparing how to give the idea its best shot possible before finally having the guts to say, we really should fill in the blank, uh, then they would, they would be much better off. And that happens. I've seen it a million times. Someone finally goes to that same meeting that they go to every week and they listen to this thing and they don't say that thing they want to say. And finally they go, the truth is the software is bad. I don't know why we part, we should do. And they, they say what they want to say. And then no one was prepared. No one has the context. No one is invested uh, in, in the reaction is maybe not as good as they wanted. Ahead of time, they could have thought about how do I shape that to be discernible, understandable to the audience who's there? How do I reframe that to make that useful, not just to me, but maybe a benefit to them they can see personally, not just me sharing a, an idea. How, how can I go start some conversations and float some trial balloons before that big meeting to give this idea when I finally go public a chance? There's a lot of practical things like that you can do. So it sounds like we are making it really hard within our corporations for people to be creative. So what are we doing to squash creativity that we need to be aware of? Well, how much time do we have? for? <laughs> so my first, you didn't know this, but my first love uh, as an academician back in the ivory tower days, uh, before I morphed into a more general leadership person, that's kind of how people know me now. Uh, I started because everything in the world of, of uh, uh, the ivory tower is extremely narrowly defined. And when you get your PhD, you got to do a dissertation and it's got to be on a very narrow topic. And my first narrow slice was on creativity and innovation, specifically creativity and, and what fosters and what inhibits individual creativity. And that's where I published for several years before morphing into a generalist. Um, so I'm still, that's why I live hard so fun for me because it gets back into some of those topics. What do we do? Ugh. Well, we love efficiencies and so we put rules and processes in place to try and make sure that things flow like they're supposed to. And, and, and we do that so much that we actually stop asking questions about, hey, is this the right flow in the first place? Or, or hey, when's the last time we intentionally disrupted ourselves to make this uh, improved? And not just followed the rules correctly, but in fact, an improved set of steps. That's a, a process view. On an interpersonal level, there's a painful answer to your question, which is that we immediately, because everyone wants to demonstrate their intelligence in the front of others, that's a social reality that it's so weird. We either shut down or overshare. Those are much more common than thought. Shut down or overshare. <laughs> yeah. Thoughtfully engaging and giving a measured response. That's not, that's not nearly as common as shutting down or oversharing. So people want to do that. They want to go, no, nope, don't think that will work. And the easiest way to quickly respond is not praise for most people, but it's critical. I won't say it's wrong, but it's usually not productive because a new idea shows up. And the first thing people want to do is well, you know what, um, I wanna make sure everyone knows I understand what was just said. So I'm gonna say this, that is possibly interesting, but it'll cost way too much. Or I hear you, but I think we tried something like that last quarter and it didn't work. I'm not sure why we would, and they immediately wanna assert themselves in some way that frankly isn't good for creativity, even if, which is terrible to say, even if they're kind of right, because what that idea needs to your earlier question, what that idea needs is a, a little fertile ground to roll around and grow just a little bit before we start throwing knives at it, which is what we usually do quickly. So it sounds like there's a cost to shutting down creativity. And so even if we are right, and even if we've already thought of that angle a hundred different ways, that if we 
shut it down too fast, then we might also be shutting down the second and the third idea that would have followed it. It's just uh, spot on the way that works for sure. Every time you're engaged in a situation with someone, you're, there are strong ripple effects for your future interactions based on what they learn today in this interaction. You're precisely correct. Uh, and, and it doesn't take, by the way, more than one or two, it's not 10 and 20, social experiences where you feel over critically addressed by someone or maybe a critically appropriately addressed in a way you didn't see coming or want to deal with, even if they were right. Only one or two before you will radically increase the likelihood that in the future you'll go and just sit there and say nothing because you have made a back of the envelope mental calculation real quick that this is not worth it. Not for this idea with that person. Uh, -uh It's silence. And then the next level is, do I let that feeling start to invade how I address other topics with that person? And then the next level is, do I let that invade how I feel about other topics with other people? It cascades in terms of the psychology to a broader and broader scope inside your head. That's why I mean it so much. People like me, there's many people who do what I do or, or preach the things I preach are all about positivity. It sounds like a cliche and something so simple. No, it is mental, beautiful stuff that lubricates conversations and ideas and progress. And when we allow unproductive amounts of questionable negativity in workspaces, you are in a literal sense hurting the organization because you're shutting down conversations and the only type of innovation that will happen in a mediocre or toxic culture is the kind you buy off the shelf. Okay, we're gonna innovate by getting uh, updating our systems or something like that. That's fine, could be useful, wonderful, but real process innovation requires human beings to have difficult conversations and experiment with things over time and learn together as a team and grow. That cannot happen if you don't have a basis of mostly positive culture. Interesting. And I think most of the business owners listening to us today would say that they value innovation as an integral part of the future of their business. Um, For the insurance agency owners who are listening, it's vital because the insurance industry is changing so rapidly that we have to be able to innovate to keep up with it and be able to adapt and thrive in a constantly changing environment. So how can a business owner What do they need to do to make sure that the culture they've created actually encourages innovation and it's not just a platitude that they say is a part of the business? Great question. A couple quick thoughts on that. One is you want to know what's the scorecard look like for how well I've been innovating in the last three to five years. And every different business is going to answer that differently. But what I mean is don't think you're good or bad at it. Use something more objective, even though it's hard to get objective sometimes. Use something more objective. When you think about world-class innovators in the space of this certain type of insurance over here, what makes them such? Is it the pace they do something, the introduction of new things? Is it the service unique component thing? What is it that clearly specify or shows that you're being in your space innovative? So be very clear about that. Don't just make simple assertions about yourself. Try and be data-driven, number one. Number two, and this is huge and probably going to get offensive to some of your business owner listeners, but I don't care. This is my job. You got to listen. Ready? What you think about your culture isn't correct. 
let me say that again. What you think about your culture isn't correct. Now, now that I've been provocative, let me explain. What I mean is that humans all have different perceptions of an issue. And there are, we all have a, a large array of interesting cognitive biases that creep up uh, kind of invisibly and affect and shape how we think, usually without us knowing it. It really is interesting. So how you view yourself is different than how others view you. I love telling leaders that, hey, let's talk about your team. Back in the day, I used to do a lot of consulting and they would always go, yeah, yeah, heard about you, I'm excited you're here. I mean, I, I get along great with my team, but I don't think you're gonna find a whole lot with, with my team. We get along great, you know, me and my yeah, team. Yeah. <laughs> and then I say, well, what does your team think about you? And they say some things. And then I talk to the team, I'm an outsider, which means they're censoring, but they still tell me things that guy had no idea was about to be said. And then I get to know them and they tell me more. And then we do some observations and some survey work and what have you. And then we, they can't believe what their team thinks about on a regular basis. That's happening to the people listening to your podcast too, when they think about any given object at work. Now that might sound disorienting to just take that all in that I tried to share, but there's an easy way to deal with it. It's not that hard. You've just got to admit that that perceptual gap type of issue is a reality for humans. And then you've got to endeavor to close that gap. And the way you can do that is through feedback. And that's tough for a boss to get because of the status that bosses have. It's tough, but you can go develop and empower a small number of people outside of the normal evaluation system that we all love so much at work and, and get them to say, you know what? Uh, okay, I will give you some feedback. And usually you increase the odds by asking kindly, saying little, listening more, uh, asking multiple times so they learn to take you serious, responding positively, thoughtfully to anything critical so they know it's okay to do even more unfiltered feedback. And then to thank them. You've got to show gratitude for this brave moment where someone actually speaks truth to power and tells you what they see. And the second thing I would say is don't be afraid to empower your people. Put together a committee or a group of people and let them uh, uh, go talk to the masses instead of you talking to the masses because you have that, that I'm top of the pyramid status, which really does trip people up sometimes. But if you let people who are part of the middle and bottom of the pyramid go out and run a data gathering operation, it could be observations, could be town halls, could be surveys, could be focus groups, all this, you're going to get better data simply because they're talking to one of their peers or something close to it instead of an outsider, which can be useful, but sometimes freaks people out. <laughs> or, or talking to executives, because executives, what do they hear from people? They hear what those people think they should say to them. It's filtered so much. Ugh. Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him. I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's, let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed. Let's do it. And that's what we did. 
We flew to Columbia, we saw his operation, and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at Virtual Intel, that's with two L's, that's Virtual I-N-T-E-L-L.com. Go check us out, see what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology, delivered right into your agency, and you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, requiring, recreating, trying to find processes. Just, there's so much stuff, I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel, cast certified. So you just have to recognize that that gap is there and that it's going to happen and then make it easier to facilitate real conversations where people can be authentic. If you value innovation, you're going to have to have tough conversations and get past your own perceptual biases and make it a much, much bigger conversation where others have just as much or more say than you. That's just a requirement for real innovation. So it sounds like a stretch. So is it worth it? What's the difference in a team culture where that's happening compared to a team culture where that's not happening? There's a lot of variables there to try and answer that. I mean, for example, uh, one of my favorite variables deals with accountability and performance standards. So for example, you could have a very positive team culture, one that is, uh, which is reported by people. If you were doing a survey, for example, yeah, I dig my job. I feel pretty good when I'm at work. I kind of like everybody. My satisfaction's good and I do my work and it's great. Uh, but the truth <laughs> is that that organization and or that boss uh, has really not held people accountable since 1982. <laughs> everyone just loves going to work and talking around the water cooler, but not a whole lot gets done. But So those scores can be misleading. What I would say is, is what you're looking for uh, is a positive environment for sure, but one that has mutual accountability, meaningful, clear, transparent standards. When those are, are true, positivity is nothing but an elixir for good productivity for sure. So imagine that if we have this environment where that feedback loop is occurring and people feel like they can be more authentic, um, let's talk about environments where things might be a little bit newer. So I've talked to some agents lately where they said, you know, I'm doubling the size of my sales team this year and they're in a high growth environment and it is shaking up the team culture hardcore because you have the group that's been over here that's used to doing it the old way forever. And then you have the new people that are coming in trying to get their footing. So what can fracture team culture in a high growth environment that we need to be aware of? You know, it's a great uh, topic and, and it, it's commonly a challenge because people are so excited they did A, B, and C to create this growth. And now they're going, oh, I'm, I'm feeling the pressure and the downside of growth that I never saw coming, uh, which is strange, but that's absolutely the way it is. Um, so the short answer is you have to get ahead of it and, and start recognizing that each new success could lead to growth and a fracture in the culture the way you described. So you want people to be brought together and talk about that dead body in the room instead of walking over it every day like we tend to do at work and start talking about it. This is what I would say to anyone going through it right now. I would say it is rare in your professional career that you get to be a part of an organization with a legit opportunity to define what it stands for, its values and its culture, right? 
and, and really define it, collectively define it. So there's no more old versus new. There's we defining how we would like to exist so we can all start mutually holding each other accountable for this beautiful new thing that we've defined. It's partially who we are. It's partially aspirational. It is whatever we collectively say it is, but all of us, old and new. And then there's here's the tough part of the answer. If there is old leftover that doesn't like change for whatever reason, and yes, that does happen, you have to ask yourself what you value more. Those three people over there with whom you have a long history or the 50 people over here who are really into what I just said, that collective new discussion about what we're becoming and how we're going to define it. Because if you're smart, it's tough. I know that. But you're going to value the new thing that you've just created. And you're going to really privately and respectfully talk to the small number of people who might not get it or like it. And you're going to explain to them that this is our reality. And here's what I need from you in terms of behavioral, not just performance, but behavioral expectations. And, and there are consequences for our behaviors. And six months from now, if you're not with me, with the pom-poms, making cheers for this thing we're all creating, then we have to talk about changing your role or whether or not you want to be with this organization. Those are very tough conversations to have, but ultimately you're here to serve the larger thing that you've created, not just one or two people who were awesome at 20 years ago when you started. And having that purpose clearly defined makes those decisions a little bit easier because no it's it. easier to tell if you guys are all heading in the same direction or not. And Todd, you mentioned that leaders can have that moment where they can be a little um, unaware that there's a perception gap on the team. And I'm wondering if it's possible when you're in a leadership position to feel like you're being authentic because you intend to be authentic, but you're not actually being authentic. Have you ever seen that happen? Well, it's extremely common. So there's this thing, it's a phrase I made up called the status bubble. And I'll explain it to you because I think it's what you're talking about. The status bubble is a psychological barrier between people that exists because of differences in, in position and a hierarchy. So it, I've heard this many times from people who occupy lofty positions in the hierarchy. They say, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a decent person. I'm an open book. What can I do, Todd? I keep the door open and I try to be honest and be authentic. And I go, uh, first of all, I'm, well, I'll judge how true that is as I get to know you. But more importantly, if you were to assume all that's true, there is still a burden. And it's big that you carry just because of the role that you fill in the hierarchy. Everyone who deals with people above them in the hierarchy feels that difference. They sense either overtly or subconsciously that there is a difference in power and agenda and status. And there is weird censoring and shaping that goes on as a result. So what I tell people is that you have to find a way to pop the status bubble. And, and there's different ways to do that. The best way to do that is to humanize yourself more because bosses want to act increasingly professional and exude competence and confidence, which is great, but it's incomplete if you want to break the status bubble and have people relate to you more as a peer, not just as a superior in a hierarchy. And the way you do that is to humanize yourself. You talk about your mistakes, your learning moments five times a year, not five times a week, which would be strange, but five times a year, you should be laughing at yourself. I mentioned Show Your Ink a little while ago in that book, there was a story about a time I bombed on stage. That's a rare thing, but it happened and it hurt about 15 oh, years ago at State Farm. And I've had so much fun for the last 15 years getting on stages around planet Earth, telling the State Farm story and humbling myself and, and talking about how it helped me ultimately grow. That's a choice that you make. Uh, and so I would say to anyone listening, the number one way you can get them past the status bubble that you probably didn't even know exists and is stopping real rapport and real conversation 
is to learn to laugh at yourself just a little more. In fact, it's related to why that guy, I didn't know this was going to come together. It's related to why that guy was on the roof with the watermelon that I talked about earlier. He had done some things and he wanted to learn to laugh at himself. And, and, and anyhow, sometimes you do have to humble yourself and laugh at yourself uh, to have other people go, you know what? He gets it. She gets it. They are laughing at themselves. They know that they're just like us. And that's refreshing. It is so refreshing. It makes people want to listen to you more. What's more, what's that word? That's priceless. Well, I can't wait to find out more about this watermelon. So is that one in show your ink? <laughs> nice. That's so good. So, um, gosh, I feel like that's such a good challenge though, because at the end of the day in, in modern culture, I mean, we're not going to be able to create teams where we are transforming together and learning and growing if we don't have those meaningful conversations happening. And those aren't going to happen if there's that huge divide through whether it be the status bubble or the perception gap. And so it, it definitely seems like it's worth it to try to stretch ourselves, humble ourselves, laugh at ourselves a little bit, and just get to know people and be able to enjoy the people that are around us on a daily basis. We spend more time with our teams than we do with our families so many times so wow. often. And so being able to have that common purpose at work and being able to have that, um, that family culture at the office that everyone talks about, I feel like goes a long way towards people being able to thrive in their workplace and not just have to come in and punch a clock. So I couldn't possibly agree more, of course. I love the way you said that. And I'd reframe it uh, just to make the point even more. It, it's about risk perceptions. People perceive all kinds of risks at work and you want them focused on the beautiful things you were just articulated uh, as opposed to focusing on the risks. So when people think about excelling at work they think about getting the work done and they think about pleasing certain people, which is weird, but they do think in those terms. Uh, but what they really don't wanna do is think about changing things and working on things that we don't, we don't know how new things are gonna happen happen when we're creating something new. Is that process going to work? Is that tweak I made on the software actually going to work? What if they listened to me and tried to save money the way I just said, and they actually didn't save money? How, how would I feel about that? Well, I wouldn't feel good. And so since we see all of those risks, we often overshape, over-censor, and become risk averse. And great leaders know how to get people not focused on those risks. It's what some would call feeling psychologically safe so no matter what the outcome might be, we're still going to engage conversation when we think it's necessary. So how should a leader address the risk? So they, should they talk about it and address it head on or put the focus on, you know, the purpose so that we aren't dwelling on the risk too much? Yes, yes, and more. Definitely okay. want to talk about it. And you also want to behaviorally show it, which is way better than even talking about it. So when someone has, there's another story, I'll tell you the, the quick punchline. Uh, I met a sales engineer one time who told a customer to make a big sale that their widgets that they sold uh, could do A, B, and C, but they're really only designed to do A and B. But he knew, he thought he could go to the shop floor, talk to some guys and get it to do this other thing a little bit you know, different than it was designed for. Yeah. And he told the customer so, and he made it happen. And big sale, he looked like a hero. And then the fix, because it really wasn't thoughtfully designed over years, the fix only worked for a short period of time. And then the, the widget broke down at the client site. The boss of this engineer blew up on this guy in front of others. That's a horrible faux pas at work. Cube land, there's no secrets in Cube land. Come on. <laughs> he he <laughs> rightly 
criticized in an unproductive way, a person who broke a rule, uh, instead of calling it what it is, and this is where it comes down to, it's a learning moment. Instead of yelling at this person who never again would take a risk on the behalf of the organization, take my word for it, he should have, and I coached him to do this, go out and say, that happened and that's kind of ugly, don't worry, I've already called the client and we're fixing it. And it's gonna cost a few dollars, but don't get stressed out about that because actually what you did was really well-intentioned. You walked out on a limb looking for a, a MacGyver answer, a, a good creative fix. <laughs> a MacGyver was, answer, there you go. <laughs> and you did it. And you know what? We got to get better at doing that so we reduce the risks. We got to help you next time instead of you doing it solo. I'm going to put you in the newsletter with a big innovation under your name because that's what you just chased on our behalf. And I have to thank you for that. That took some guts and it was creative. Let's see how we can do it differently and better next time. That's how you're supposed to respond. Wow. And I, here's what I'm wondering, Todd, and let me know if you can shed some light on this, but when we talk about addressing the risks head on and th this communication that has to happen, I wonder if oftentimes the people in leadership positions are those drivers, the captain of the ship that are very comfortable with change and they're not as risk averse as maybe many people on their team, if not the majority of their team, depending on what industry they're in. So how should a person who's very risk tolerant, talk to a group of people who are probably more risk averse than what inside than what they're saying externally to you? It's an interesting question. And I bet you there are industries uh, and sectors where, where that was very, very, very accurate. I've actually seen a lot of executives uh, lean towards risk aversion because the bigger the fiefdom I manage, the less I want to screw it up and, and, and lose it. Uh, and that, that's one of the reasons scholars out there think that in, uh, organizations have a difficult time innovating because they are so in love with the uh, status quo they've created that made them look good in the first place. So there's some of that. But in general, your point's really good. The idea that we're, we're different people, and that's not good or bad. We're different. There's a, a different profile of people that ascends to the executive ranks. They're pretty rare, hardworking, type A, all those things. I'm stereotyping, forgive me. And the, the real challenge that you've pointed out is that when framing change for others, they need to appreciate those differences that, that really make them see the issue different. And, and so the question becomes, what words do they need to hear? Not, not the jargon, but words in language they would use. What are the benefits that clearly justify the efforts you're about to go tell them we've all got to exude to get this change to happen? Uh, more, more ideally, can you make it a real minority of the time that uh, innovation is just decreed from on high and instead is the result of a collaborative process across levels of the hierarchy, meaning they're not surprised because they had some representation in creating the very thing the executive is now saying is about to happen. That is always the ideal. They have a bit of ownership in it then, at least um, uh, mentally, emotionally, they're invested in this idea or th this project because they were a part of it. You got it. And, and I think that the hits hardest, the nail on the head. It's one of the hardest things I've, I've watched executives do is, is, is get past saying, I know I should give up a little control and actually do it. Because when people feel empowered and have ownership, to your point, it's ridiculous how their behavior is so much different. They just persevere so much better. They're more creative, et cetera, because they feel ownership. Agents, this is a golden nugget of an idea for us because as captains of the ship, we already have a lot of great ideas and we may have already thought through all of the, you know, the ifs, ands, or buts. But what I'm hearing is that if we slow down the process long enough, 
to let the rest of the team be a part of the new change or this new thing that we're going to pilot, then even if it takes a little bit longer, if the end result is that the team is bought in and on board and is tackling this pilot or this campaign with an ownership mentality, then we're going to have better results. And so then it becomes worth what we thought was a delay in the timeline. I think so often we're rushing ahead to try to get this new lead source in front of our salespeople, or we're trying to um, get our team behind this new campaign that's going to grow the business. And we're probably going to be met with a little bit of resistance if, if they just aren't on board with it yet. So I think sometimes we just have to slow it down a little bit and not expect them to be quite at the pace that we're at. And we can do that by involving them or involving more of them. Uh, so that we have that group of people who can speak to, hey, we tried it and it worked and this is why we like it. And then you have a, you have champions for the project on the floor that can help you when you're rolling it out to the rest of the group. So Champions on the floor will take a mediocre idea and make it implement <laughs> successful, whereas lacking that champion group mentality, uh, ownership mentality on the floor will take a great idea quickly. I, I've had to learn this one the hard way, Todd, if I'm honest, because I like to charge ahead and just put together some great content and a great process and be like, here you go, guys. <laughs> and it just doesn't work that way because people will just look at it and be like, okay, and then just not do it. <laughs> and then you have to, it's so much harder to deal with it after the fact when you rushed implementation, you don't have buy-in and everyone's just, just not doing the new process. And they're not even saying they don't like it. They're just not doing it. And so I think that um, I've had to really relearn how we do pilots at Quantum and um, learning to have that test phase, slowing it down a little bit, making sure that you do have champions that are on board, because if your champions aren't on board, there's probably something wrong with your process. It absolutely and, is. Uh, it can definitely get better. So that, that's if made I, a big difference for us. I'm sorry, if I haven't said this, I, I think I'm remiss and I have to say it. Uh, your ideas and your, your expertise, dear owners, is very important, but everything is about execution and execution is all about relationships, even more than the perceived quality of the ideas that you're advocating we should adopt. It's all about relationships. The more you nurture that collaborative feel, that real rapport, that building of trust, the more any given idea you might be trying to discuss with them will be taken quite seriously because within the confines of a great relationship, almost anything's possible. So whether we like it or not, we have to have a team that's on board that's carrying the weight with us. And the idea could be golden, but if we're the only person that can execute on it, <laughs> it's going to fall flat pretty fast. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. So speaking of entrepreneurs and this, this interesting life that entrepreneurs have chosen and um, assuming they might be a little more uh, risk tolerant, in your book, Live Hard, you, you talk about taking principled risks. So like, when does it make sense to take a risk and when should you be a little bit more methodical? How, how can you know if you're making a wise risk? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm not sure there's a simple, uh, perfect answer for it. Um, but I, I want people to struggle with it thoughtfully instead of just avoid that risk. I mean, there's research, by the way, you know, when you talk to older people, people more advanced in years, 
and you say, looking back on life, hey, do you have any regrets? What do you wish you would have done differently? You see some things that are kind of predictable show up. Hey, I wish I would have more fully, more engaged. I wish I would have taken this risk and that risk in my career that I didn't do. I didn't chase that dream. That's pretty common. So what I like to remind people is that if you're not sure is this wise or not, on average over a lifetime, still try it. Because when you fail and you learn, you are investing in being a person of advanced years later who can look back and say something I think is beautiful, which is this, man, I went full speed to the best of my ability, learned a ton, tried so many things I wanted to try, big wins over there, couple losses, but man, they taught me a ton and actually pushed me to the next big win. That is a story looking back that sounds more like, like a legacy, frankly, as opposed to someone who sits there and goes, well, you know what? I successfully avoided risk and screwing up <laughs> for 40 years. Good for me. Who wants to be that boring, you know? <laughs> it's so true. And it's, we need that reminder, Todd. So th thank you so much. And um, give us the cliff notes real quick to show your ink. Well, uh, the signature story is by the time I got ripped uh, by a boss at a consulting gig in Matamoros, Mexico, because apparently the client had seen an early version of some ink I had and, and, and really made some jokes about it and questioned the talent we hire because it was still more stigmatized, you know, 25 years ago uh, than it is now. And so that book is just about various aspects of authenticity and relationship stories, uh, 20 stories around uh, aspects of relationships that really do drive personal success and, and leadership success, fun, emotional, make the learning stick type of stories. In fact, uh, to just give people a little frame of reference, if you've ever watched a really good keynote where there's a, most of them are kind of story driven, those are the stories that make up my story books. That is to say, they're, they're, they're five and six pages. They're not two hour stories, they're short stories, but they get to the point and they're real about, I can't believe I'm admitting this to you, maybe maybe 80 to 95% of a given story is real. And the rest, of course, we took some writers, writers rights and made it a, a more coherent or a more impactful story, but they're real and, and people love them. So thanks for asking. Oh, absolutely. So thanks for telling us about your, your books. And I know you're an avid writer and author and that you have authored several, several other books as well. So what's the best way that our audience can look you up, find your stuff and um, connect with you? Thanks for asking. Uh, my two favorite answers to that are number one, LinkedIn. That is kind of uh, often the center of many things I do professionally from live streaming uh, to, to what have you. So check me out on LinkedIn and connect. I'd love to connect. And then there's my my actual website, drdoit.com. That's D-R-D-E-W-E-T-T.com, which has more than you'd want to know about me as a speaker and the books and so on. And I love your newsletter, Just Do It. So make sure you guys look that up as well. And agents, I know that you have, you're in insurance forever. You're not planning on exiting. So you might not be on LinkedIn yet. If that is you, I'm telling you right now, don't wait another minute, revive your LinkedIn profile, get on there. It's different than it was three years ago. It is the place you want to be to stay connected with influencers in the industry in the insurance industry and outside of the industry, people like Dr. Todd Dewitt, who can bring in this fresh perspective for us and help us learn and grow as we're entrepreneurs in our businesses. So get on LinkedIn <laughs> and start following uh, Dr. Todd and some other great people. And it will just um, be that little extra thing that you can do to keep those good ideas flowing and get yourself in front of some great content and some, some make some great connections. So Thank you so much, uh, Todd. It was really great picking your brain on leadership and just how to be a little bit more authentic and not forgetting about 
the relationships piece of this puzzle because our ideas are so important. We want to foster ideas, but the idea itself is only going to take us so far. Thank you. My pleasure. Talk to you next time.